Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the History of Anglo-Saxon England, Series 1, Episode 27, or Episode 17 under the old money, Knut the Conqueror. This is your regular reminder that the content of this episode is exactly the same as the corresponding episode in the History of England, and that I have restored this here merely for the sake of your ease and completeness. Also, you will notice a change in the quality of recording pretty soon, since the original was recorded over a decade ago when the world was colder and cooler. Last week, then, we heard about how Knut at last made himself secure on the throne of England. This week, we're going to hear about how he transformed himself from evil foreign conqueror to English Christian king. The story of his reign is also very much an international story. So in the past, we've had hints of international policy and relationships with kings like Offa and Athelstan. But Knut was qualitatively different. A large part of his story is about his establishment, however temporarily, of a Scandinavian empire of which England was just one part. So it's impossible to have any history of Knut without talking a bit about this, but I promise you I'm going to try and make sure that I don't get dragged too far into it. As far as England's concerned, Knut had to find a way of uniting the country again after 30 years of war. And what's more, he had to unite the country under him one of the people who had torn the place apart in the first place. So far, the English had known him and his father as vicious invaders who had raped the English nation repeatedly, done his best to impoverish them, and acted with utter ruthlessness, such as episodes like the mutilation of hostages in 1015. So Canute would have known that this task was not a gimme. Canute's strategy to achieve this was by making himself more English than the English. He realised that he had to convert himself from the Danish wild man into the English Christian. He had to convince the English that he was one of them, that he'd adopted their ways and customs, and that now he could be trusted. There's an interesting parallel here with William the Conqueror, 50 years later, when William initially attempts exactly the same sort of thing. As we'll see, for some reason, it doesn't work with William in the way that it does for Canute. And you have to ask yourselves if that tells you something about the nature of the state that each man set up. By the end of last week's episode, 
also known as 1018, Canute had already made great strides. He'd married Ethered's widow, and he'd agreed with the English to abide by Edgar's laws. This last one, of course, was particularly significant. It both reassured the English that he wasn't going to make any radical changes, and Canute borrowed the legitimacy of the model English king, Edgar. But we should remember that Knut still had a long way to go in 1018. In his wife, Emma of Normandy, he had a powerful ally and supporter. Emma would have been about 32 when she married Knut in 1017, which in terms of the time was far from being in the first flush of youth. There'd already been some early indications that Emma was not to be pushed into the background. When she was the wife of Ethelred, she clearly actively managed the lands that were given to her as part of the marriage negotiations. So, for example, we see her bring over her own men from Normandy to run the towns that she owned, such as Exeter. She's also much more prominent in the signing of charters than Ethelred's first wife had been. And in 1016, when Edmund Ironside died, Emma was left alone holding London. She showed herself perfectly capable of holding it against Knut, until she felt that negotiation was the best way forward. Emma is an absolutely fascinating player over the next 30 years. Her marriage to Canute could easily be seen as a cold-hearted political decision that left her sons at the time by Ethelred coldly to their fate. Alfred and Edward were in Normandy, and she was in London. And by becoming Canute's wife, her chances of getting to see her two boys would be extremely low, since they were both pretenders to the throne that Canute could well have done without. In fact, Emma's decision to marry Knut very probably saved those boys' lives. Knut had already shown that he was quite ruthless enough to get rid of pretenders. But it was also quite likely that Emma felt little for her sons by Ethelred. After Knut's death, her later behaviour shows a marked preference for her sons by Knut rather than by Ethelred. We'll hear much more about Emma later on, but my impression is very strongly that Emma was a woman for whom power influence and the ability to have an impact on affairs was absolutely paramount and far more important to her than her sons in Normandy. During Canute's reign, Emma became increasingly important to him. After 1020, as foreign adventure becomes Canute's main focus, she begins to sign ever more of the royal charters and was clearly part of the royal inner circle. And she was absolutely invaluable to Canute in her ability to lead and advise him on his relationships with the English church. Because Knut had realised early that to become more English than the English, he needed to win the respect of the English church and project a Christian image. Emma and her husband clearly made a good partnership during Knut's reign. Her importance in the government is emphasised by what happens after Knut's death, when her position became extremely political. What started as a marriage of convenience ended up by being a partnership that very probably meant an awful lot to both of them. And throughout Canute's reign, Emma probably found the kind of fulfilment that she was looking for. After Canute's death, things were never to be quite the same again. So Canute set about the process of convincing the English that he was one of them. To be accepted as a Christian monarch clearly had to win the support of the English church. It's also important to note that the church and churchmen were an essential part of any propaganda campaign at the time, given that they were the only people who could write. They almost certainly controlled history, given that much of what Canute's schools or poets would sing would be lost to prosperity in the end. Canute started by quickly making a friend and ally of Archbishop Wolfston. 
I've not been very good about talking about Wolfston. I do apologise, but to be honest, I don't intend to get significantly better now. But just to say that Wolfston, Bishop of London, Worcester and Archbishop of York, was the leading churchman of the first quarter of the 11th century. His writings, sermons and homilies were well known throughout England, and he was the leading supporter of Benedictine reform, continuing the work of Edgar and Dunstan during Ethelred's reign. He'd also been a close adviser of Ethelred throughout his reign, and was therefore very closely associated with the English leadership. Until his death in 1023, Wolfston was a central figure in Knut's inner circle of advisers, right from the beginning of his reign, and his advice would also have helped Knut understand how to win over the church. Wolfston also led Knut's project to issue his own law codes later in his reign. Knut set himself to repair the churches and monasteries that had been damaged or destroyed during the Danish wars. Throughout his reign, Knut gave gifts widely and generously to the church, and in particular to institutions such as Winchester and Canterbury. He gave to churches abroad as well, the leading example being the institution at Chartres. We've already seen that this is very much the tradition of the English kings since the conversion to Christianity, as it was indeed throughout the rest of Christian Western Europe, and Knut's gifts included not only land, but also rights and privileges, so this might include things like being excluded from taxes, or giving away the rights to income from ports or boroughs. Knut also realised that he had to heal the wounds of the recent conflict and find a way to reconcile the two sides over key events. One of his actions, therefore, was to demonstrate respect for his opponents in the struggle. In 1020, he therefore ordered a church to be built at the site of the Battle of Ashenden, the site of the last battle and where Edmund had been defeated and so many English leaders killed. He made a major event out of the church's consecration, taking Wolfstan as Archbishop of York and himself on a procession to visit the church in person. He was careful to position this as remembering the dead of both sides, not as a process of glorifying Danish victory. He also focused on specific events where some kind of atonement was needed. So you may remember the story of St. here, the Archbishop of Canterbury whose brutal murder by the Danes had led to the defection of Thorkel the Tall. In 1023, therefore, Knut ordered the removal of St. Althea's remains to Canterbury Cathedral with great ceremony and occasion, but by so doing, he incurred the anger of the inhabitants of London. But then, as we've seen, Knut and the people of London weren't really the best of mates anyway, so that was okay then. Finally, Knut visited Rome in 1027, as part of the coronation of Conrad II as Holy Roman Emperor. He came back with some practical results, regarding the reduction of tolls and obstacles for pilgrims, and no doubt he enjoyed the chance to meet up with people of similar job descriptions to his own. But the main reason for the visit was again the opportunity to demonstrate just how very Christian he was. No way was he a foreign pagan, no sir. Put together, all of this was remarkably successful in changing the perception that Canute's English subjects had of him, and built a surviving tradition of his piety. And to be honest, there's really no reason to doubt that in this matter, personal conviction and public policy came nicely together. Knut did his best to demonstrate the continuity between his rule and that of the preceding Anglo-Saxon monarchs, as a way of emphasising the legitimacy of his rule, above and beyond the right of conquest. One of the ways he did this was in his patronage of the church, 
as we've just talked about, but it's worth noting that probably the most important daily factor would have been the continuation of the process of government and administration. Knut did nothing to change the system of hundreds, shires and shire courts that formed the daily rhythm of administration, which was all most people would have ever seen of the king. However, he also used the law to emphasise continuity. We've also seen that one of Knut's earliest acts was to confirm at Oxford in 1018 that England would continue to abide by Edgar's law. Wolfstan helped Knut issue a code at that meeting, which was effectively an adaptation of Athelred's Code of 1008, which itself had built on Edgar's codes. In 1020 or 1021, Wolfstan and Knut issued law codes from Winchester that were to become the defining code of English law after the Norman Conquest. While the law code is comprehensive and practical, it is almost universally without innovation. So again, it reflects and builds on existing practice from the time of Edgar. Although not particularly innovative, there are many things worth noting about the law codes. The first is that Knut is very keen to make sure that all the different practices of Anglo-Saxon regions and the Dane law are recognised, so that all his people know that he's respecting their individual rights. This reflects the policy of the kings of England for some time. Ethelred himself had also issued separate law codes, one at Winchester for the Anglo-Saxon area and the other at Wantage to cover the Dane law. Another interesting area is the specific mention in the codes of the king's rights. These hadn't been specifically mentioned before, but in the code for Wessex and Mercia, the royal rights were listed as Munbrice, or royal protection, Hamsocken, which means an assault on property, Forstal, which means an assault on person, and Third Right, which is the right of military service. It's not exactly clear why these are suddenly mentioned in the law codes, but it could have something to do with the growth of private justice with lords now beginning to dispense justice themselves. This is a theme we'll return to in future episodes, but here Canute is reminding his lords that although they may be dispensing justice in these areas, all these rights come from him, and if he decides to take them back, then he can have them back. Whenever he likes, no argument. One other thing, we also see the specific inclusion of outlawry, which was the ultimate sanction of Anglo-Danish law. Outlawry seems to have been of Scandinavian origin, and was derived from folklore, and therefore fell into the shire courts rather than being derived from the king's rights. So Knut worked hard to satisfy his new English subjects and to settle old grievances. But inevitably there are also areas where it could not be hidden that Englishmen were just part of a conquered nation. It's very clear that by the end of his reign Knut felt very secure in England, but this was not the case in earlier times and some of the actions he took to protect and secure his reign were actually the things that were to have the longest-lasting consequences, such as in taxation and the creation of the great earldoms. So the first of these factors was about the people who hold land and power. There's nothing like the wholesale transfer of power we see in the Norman conquests, but like William, Knut was surrounded by a group of men who expected to get some reward for their loyalty during the campaign. So we see plenty of evidence of land grants and an influx of Danes into the ruling class. One of the best sources of evidence is the Doomsday Book, with its clear evidence of the widespread existence of Scandinavian names. It's also significant that while Knut was prepared to trust Englishmen with the exercise of power, there are far fewer of them in Knut's inner circle than Danes, especially in the earlier years. In addition, the use of the Scandinavian term Earl had almost completely replaced the English form of Alderman by 1035. 
the traditional English alderman had been very much connected with the shire, and the shire had been connected with the traditional origins of the English nations, whereas earldoms were anything but. They were simply royal appointees ruling vast areas arbitrarily decided by the king. A study of the people who hold earldoms is also revealing. Of the sixteen men who signed charters in Knut's reign, only six are English. Knut essentially formed a kitchen cabin to close advisers around him, which is awfully reminiscent of the Thane and his close followers of the early English days. The chief members of this inner circle were Thorkill until 1021, Erich Lathir and his son Harkon until 1026, and Eilath the Viking. By the end of the reign, these men have gone, and Knut's two chief advisers are now English, Leofric of Mercia and Godwin, though it should be stressed that Godwin owed all his power to Knut, and therefore does not really represent continuity with earlier English kingdoms. The rise to power of these two men, Godwin and Leofric, and their families, was to have profound repercussions for England, because the rivalries of their families reduced its ability to form an effective response to the Norman threat in 1066. So we should take a bit of time to look at where they came from. Leofric represents the most powerful survival of the English aristocracy. He is the son of Leofwin, elderman of the Huisse, who had fought loyally on Ethelred and Edmund's side. Leofric's elder brother, Nothman, had paid the penalty for this loyalty through his execution by Knut in 1017. Godwin, on the other hand, was most definitely a parvenu, but also known for his loyalty to Edmund and Ethelred. We know very little of his provenance, though we know that his father was called Wolfnoth, and it seems possible that it was the same Wolfnoth who was accused of treachery by Edric Striona, and who took a squadron of ships and started to reign his own kingdom. After 1016, he became a trusted adviser of Knut, and accompanied him on his 1018 campaign to Denmark. He must have performed well, because he was rewarded by being made Earl of Essex in 1019. Knut trusted Godwin and raised him up, even allowing him to marry into his family, when Godwin married Knut's sister-in-law, Githa. Godwin developed a huge landed estate centred on Bosham in, in Sussex, and in the later part of Knut's reign he practically became his vice-regent. The Godwins were to remain a power in England until William came and broke them. The other major lord during Canute's reign was Seward of Northumbria. Seward was a Dane who had succeeded Eric of Clathir as the Earl of Northumbria. The ancient Anglo-Saxon family that had ruled Bamborough still remained in the form of Edwulf, Uhtred's son. Later, Seward was to take over the whole of Northumbria, though. By and large, Seward played less of a role at the centre of politics. That was mainly taken by Leofric and Godwin. Another symptom of subjection was Canute's creation of what is effectively the first standing army in England, and the first iteration of an issue that will have many repeats during the following centuries. This had two forms. Canute surrounded himself with a core unit of specialised fighting men called the Huskarls. These were essentially professional soldiers. Their existence not only stressed Canute as an alien and an outsider, they also point to a wider development of warfare and the pressures it would put on society. Essentially, it could no longer be expected that the ordinary shell could maintain all the equipment they needed to fight effectively, although the third would remain an element of the army until 1066. And so, a professional corps was maintained. The same applied to the fleet, so although Canute paid off most of his ships, he did retain 16 to remain in permanent service. 
This corps of professional soldiers needed paying, and in England Knut had found the most efficient tax administration in the Western world, which had built up around the regular need to deliver the Danegeld to the Danish invaders. Since 1012, Ethelred had collected this tax regularly, not just when the Danish invaders need paying off. That's because he maintained a regular group of professional soldiers. However, the English might well have expected that with the Danish invaders paid off, that Knut would no longer collect the Danegeld, or Heergeld, as it was also known, i.e. the army tax. But not a bit of it. He maintained his professional corps of soldiers and ships, so the Heergeld still needed to be collected. In fact, the tax was charged annually until Edward the Confessor abolished it in 1052. It very probably amounted to something not much less than the Danegeld of the preceding decades, and the English hated it. This is, of course, a theme that will continue to cause trouble throughout English history, the upheaval caused by the need to generate money to support a king's wars, and the administrative and constitutional innovation that it so often caused. Despite these enduring symbols of English submission, Canute's reign was marked by stability and peace, or in England at least. The success of Canute's reign can be most easily measured in the number of entries in the chronicles such as the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle or Florence of Worcester. Essentially, they almost completely dry up, because there's really nothing to talk about. But one of the early events in Canute's reign is the confirmation of England's borders with Scotland. The Battle of Coldstream in 1018 was a comprehensive victory by Malcolm II of Scotland and Owen of Strathclyde over Uhtred, the Earl of Bamborough, father of the Edwolf we've just mentioned. Coldstream marks the end of any question about which kingdom Lothian belonged to. There are different schools of thought about this. One that Edgar had granted Lothian to the Scots, and this battle simply confirmed it. The other that the Battle of Coldstream was the key event that annexed Lothian to Scotland. Whatever approach you take, by 1018, Scotland's modern borders were pretty much under her control. The northern kings continued to pay nominal fealty to the English king, as demonstrated in 1027, when the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle records that Canute visited the Scottish king and received his fealty, and that of two lesser kings. But presumably this visit also confirmed Scotland's ownership of the Lothian region, after this date, it was Seward who was the guardian of English power in the face of the Scots, and he was a warrior lord in the ancient mould. During his lifetime, he extended Northumbria significantly to the northwest in Cumbria, taking lands that had been claimed by the Kingdom of Strathclyde in the 10th century. But from 1019, Canute's main focus is with the construction of his northern empire. In 1019, Harold of Denmark died, and Knut sailed to Denmark and successfully confirmed his claim to the throne. Knut wrote a unique open letter back to his nation of England, and the only person mentioned specifically by name is Thurkel the Tall, which suggests that Thurkel is the regent in his absence. His letter is part of his propaganda, and is supposed to show why he is the best choice of ruler, and to show that he's fulfilling his promise to rule wisely. Knut explains in the letter that he'd gone to Denmark to protect England from some unspecified threat, which of course is tripe since he'd actually gone there to add a country to his empire, but it's an effective demonstration that he can keep the peace in England in a way that his predecessor couldn't. This practice of open letters is interesting, and one he repeats in 1027 on the occasion of his visit to Rome. 
However self-serving the content, it's a pretty unique example of openness about policy, and it would be difficult to find similar examples elsewhere in Europe. After he made it to the throne of Denmark, Knut made his first son by Emma, who was called Hartha Knut, the Crown Prince of Denmark, and returned to England. Soon afterwards, in 1021, Knut fell out with Thorkel, and Thorkel was outlawed and banished from his kingdoms. There doesn't seem to be any really clear explanation for this, but it's probably connected with events in Scandinavia. And after Knut's following expedition in 1022, he and Thorkel were just as surprisingly reconciled. In the end, Thorkel had been around for all of Knut's life, and an important man in all his endeavours, and he probably recognised that he owed Thorkel one. So whatever had gone wrong, Knut probably decided that he'd rather have Thorkel on his side than against him. Thorkel then disappears from the historical record, whether because he died or simply opted for the quiet life, who knows. Knut continued his search for Scandinavian glory. By 1028, he was at the head of an empire that included Denmark, Norway and parts of southern Sweden. He was without doubt a king of international importance, and his invitation to visit Rome in 1027 was a sign of his stature. From England's point of view, Knut's position and empire gave them command of the entrance to the Baltic and its trade, and to the North Sea. The flood of Viking pirates had been well and truly stemmed, and most Englishmen probably considered that to be well worth having a Danish king. If you can't beat him, join him, had in this case turned out to be pretty good advice. This control gave England's international commerce more freedom and safety than it had had for decades. Knut, like all good kings of the age, recognised the importance of encouraging commerce, and the importance to commerce of a strong coinage. In fact, if he'd been around today, it's quite possible that Knut, rather than conquering England, would have been something high up in the European Union, because he was very careful to regularise the weights of coins across his empire from England to Scandinavia, which of course must have made trade very much easier between nations, just like monetary union, depending of course on your point of view. Knut's new empire though was to be short-lived, and in fact Knut had begun to lose his grip on Norway as soon as 1033. By the time he died, Magnus, one of Olaf Tryggvason's descendants, had already made himself king of Norway. Knut died in 1035. Despite the brutality of the manner in which he had gained power, and the antipathy the English must have felt towards him at the time, Knut managed to end up with a good reputation by the end of his reign, and by and large he's retained that reputation. The old story of Canute trying to hold back the waves is a positive story of a king aware of his insignificance compared to God and of his own fallibility. Furthermore, it's a positive story because it was one very much espoused by the church, who had been convinced by Canute of his piety, and was therefore prepared to write history in his favour. The more I read about pre-conquest England, the more I come back to Alfred's impeccable management of his reputation, and how he made sure that all the messages we have of him are good ones. Knut was not quite so lucky or clever. The Anglo-Saxon Chronicle reveals the despair and hatred the English felt in the early years, but he did pretty well, and it has to be said that this record is impressive. He won himself a rich and prosperous kingdom, and then created a Scandinavian empire. He was a king of international power and renown. Most importantly, he brought England peace, prosperity, and the rule of law after 30 years of strife, for which he should get some recognition, despite the fact that he'd caused a lot of that strife himself. 
Despite that, actually the Chronicles are remarkably deadpan about his death. They simply record that it happens. There may have been fear and respect for Knut, but I suspect there wasn't much love. Knut's death came at a bad moment for the succession. It's pretty clear that he'd intended that Arthur Knut, his son via his marriage with Emma, would rule his empire, including Denmark and England, although it's quite possible that he had intended Norway to be ruled by his first wife and her son Svein. But Arthur Knut at the time was under attack from Magnus in Norway, and he couldn't come over to England to claim his inheritance. Meanwhile, Harold, the son of Knut by his first wife Alf Gifu of Northampton, was very much available and very interested in Knut's throne. Well, that's it for this week. Next time, we'll talk about the rather messy end of the Danish dynasty and get into the reign of the penultimate Anglo-Saxon King of England, a very enigmatic and difficult-to-understand figure, and in fact one of the most difficult-to-understand figures of all the monarchs we've seen yet, I think. So have a good week, and thanks very much for listening, and I'll see you next time. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.